Hey everyone, this is Paul Kingsbury. Welcome to the Cutlass Podcast, where we provide fresh perspectives to help you become a more sturdy, versatile, incredible leader and manager. Engage with us online at cutlassleadership.com and like and follow my Facebook page. And send me your questions and topic suggestions to cutlassleadership at gmail.com. Enjoy this episode. All right, Cutlass leaders and followers of the Cutlass podcast, welcome back. Uh, in this episode, I wanted to take some time to get in this topic of situational leadership. In former episodes, I've talked about power bases. I've mentioned influence tactics, but there's a time where that all comes together and good leaders and managers have to know which influence tactics to select and when, and that kind of gets us into this topic of situational leadership. So as I discussed in chapter two of the Chief Petty Officer's Guide, you know, most leaders typically find themselves leaning towards one style of leadership or one approach, but the best can adapt their style and are flexible enough to adapt it according to the nature of the unique situation and the maturity, frankly, of the teams they're leading. Uh, for example, there's times when it's appropriate to be more directive or authoritarian, but then when leading and managing another group who's more mature, you got to understand and assess their capability and willingness to achieve your objectives and then use the style that works best for that group. Perhaps you'll shift to a democratic or supporting style or a more laissez-faire, hands-off, delegating type style. And depending upon the situation and the style you choose, there are a bunch of influence tactics that are best suited for it, and I'll talk a little bit about that. So it's important to think about this topic, and I think it's going to be insightful. So to get into this topic, I've asked a friend and a former colleague of mine, uh, Command Master Chief Rick Straney, to join me. Uh, Rick's uh, got extensive experience in the uh, EOD community, Explosive Ordnance Disposal Community. He's got a lot of combat, non-combat tours. He's got combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he's currently serving as the Command Master Chief Commander Task Force 75, headquartered out there in uh, Guam. So, Rick, thanks for joining me. How's everything going? Uh, good, Paul. I appreciate you uh, asking me to come on. I'll tell you, uh, for the audience, I'm I'm definitely not the academic powerhouse uh, that Paul is, so uh, prepare to be thoroughly underwhelmed <laughs> with my academic knowledge of uh, situational leadership, although I do have a couple things to say on the topic. I think you're uh, underappreciating uh, yourself. I know you, and I know you've got great intellect and great uh, background. I also know you're a humble guy. But can you give us just a short summary of your career and experience? Sure. So uh, born in Florida, uh, raised between Florida and Kentucky, uh, was an e electronics tech back in the early 90s and then became an EOD guy, got selected for EOD. Came, and I've served four tours in Guam, first in the early 90s as an electronics tech, next as an EOD operator in the late 90s, back as command master chief of EOD Molina 5 in uh, around 2010. And then now back as the task force at 75. Uh, second task force job, so I, I was Navy Expeditionary Europe and Africa. Yeah, it's great to be able to catch up with you again. So one of the reasons, you know, I know you got operational experience, but it was cool to get. I haven't really gotten into the EOD community. Knew you, and I know your appreciation for these leadership topics. And you heard me mention earlier, right, as leaders and managers during our careers, our weeks in the Navy involved a variety of activities that we're doing across the management spectrum. So, you know, any given week, at some point we're involved in the planning process of something and other times we're in the organizing of resources process. And then we're, you know, shifting over sometimes in the same day to directing some evolution or function. 
and then we're controlling and following up or doing that organizational learning. And then as you know, right, sometimes things are routine day to day and then other times we're in crisis when things are going wrong or pressure's being applied and priorities been shifted. I remember the situational leadership model. I think I was probably exposed to it during early Navy leadership development courses back in the day. But where I really remember the framework and the kind of visuals and the concept was when I went down to the Air Force's non-commissioned officer, Senior Enlisted Academy, and they went through this model, right? And basically, you know, there's two components to it. So there's the ability to select and be flexible enough to adapt to different leadership styles and approaches. But before you do that, you got to select and assess your audience, right, or your targets. And they're assessed based on quote-unquote maturity levels that are in the book that I'll put in the episode description of. And that style was developed the year I was born, back in 1969 and through the early 70s. Uh, And it was created by Paul Hersey and Ken Blanchard. And they identified, hey, your audience or people or teams are at a certain maturity level, ranging from high to low. So they could be very capable, which means they're very experienced at the task, they're comfortable with their ability to do it well, and they're able and willing to do the task and take responsibility for the task. And then you go down through the range to low where they're unable to do it and they're insecure. And then based on your assessment of the team, you shift to one of the leadership styles of telling, selling, participating, or delegating. And frankly, those words vary depending on where you're at. You know, I call them assessing character and competence. You can call it assessing the capability and willingness of your team. Some people call it directive leadership styles, laissez-faire. Regardless, we're going to get into some of that. So what was your first experience with this model of situational leadership? Because when I teed this topic up with you, it, it rolled off the tongue. So why do you think leaders and managers should understand this topic? Great question. And I'll tell you, um, I was a, I was a one-trick pony for a long time because I was a a combat-centered guy. Okay. Um, and then I rolled right out of my operation tours into being a command master chief very quickly. The The time between my last combat tour and my first command master chief tour was only three years. So it, it was a really fast transition for me. Okay. Uh, and I had a lot of exposure to situational leadership and, and specifically the theories that were put down by uh, Dr. Hersey and Blanchard. And that was at Senior List Academy, CMC Cobb, Fleet Forces, ELS, which I believe you spoke at, yep. Keystone, and NSLS. So I've seen it several times, and it was really just an academic version of what I had kind of learned uh, in the School of Hard Knocks about situational leadership. And really, the bottom line is no leadership style is the best. The best leaders... And the best leadership style really depends on the situation and the task and the team. And the best leaders will weigh these things out and develop their leadership style based on the situation that they're in, the team that they have, and the situation that they're dealing with. So, And it really ranges from a a very supportive leadership style down to a very directive leadership style. And what I mean by that is... In a directive leadership style, you know, you have a team that has low competence and low commitment versus the supportive leadership style that you would use when you have a team with high competence and a high commitment to the task. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, as the one trick pony, you know, I, I, I really had the hammer. That was kind of the only tool I had in the tool bag. And that's great. That's a great way to, to operate when you're when you're centered around combat. It's not the best way, if I'm being honest. It's just a way, and it was the way that I I chose. But with a quick transition into into the CMC world, 
I learned very quickly that you can't lead everybody the same way. You'll have to look at the team, look at the task, look at their set, look at their commitment, and then pick what leadership style you're going to use. And I think a lot of people probably do it subconsciously. I don't think it's a, yeah. I don't think they get in there and whiteboard it right. uh, to, to figure out what leadership style they're going to use. There are definitely charts and graphs and all kinds of stuff that talk about situational leadership that visually depict what situational leadership looks like. And if I'm being totally honest, Paul, the first nerd graph I saw on this was in your office. Of course. <laughs> so it's the nuke in me coming out, right? I got to. That's a valid point, though, right? So that's one of the things I bring up, not just with the Chief Petty Officer's Guide approach and this podcast, but this isn't necessarily, hey, check it out. Look at this graph. This is how it is. In some cases, we're intuitively doing these things, but I think it's very important to understand the theory and put that graph up and then go, oh, I get it now. Now I get why I'm either getting the results I desire or maybe I understand now why my people are reacting the way they do to my leadership style because maybe I'm selecting the wrong leadership style for the situation. Yeah, no, and it's funny that you brought up styles because I was going to go down that path. So it depends on who you read and, and whose interpretation of Hersey and Blanchard's theories that you prescribe to. But they break it down into four leadership styles, which is directing, coaching, supporting, and delegating. And there's there's a bunch of other words that people use to talk about those four leadership styles. And really, there's probably more than that that are the leadership styles that are in between those four. Yeah. Uh, you know, so directing is really where you don't want any, the leader doesn't really want any input from the team. They're just going to direct what's going to happen. In combat, that happens a lot because you don't have the time. Even if you wanted to have team input, you really don't have the time for it. So there's yeah. places, there's a time and place for it. But directing, you know, is uh, definitely uh, one that you see a lot in the in the combat world. Okay. Although you know, in the planning phases of an operation, you can go through different leadership styles. Then there's coaching, where you know the leader is more receptive to input. And they really kind of sell their ideas to the team yeah. versus just telling the team what they're going to do. Yep. Uh, and then you'll move into supporting, which is, you know, the leader really has a pretty minimal input. A lot of people would even say that the leader's kind of quiet in the corner okay. uh, in the supporting role. And, and then there's delegating, which is when you have a highly competent team and they have high commitment to the task. And that's normally kind of day-to-day stuff, stuff that you just know that team can handle without your input whatsoever. Absolutely. And most good leaders, like I said, will flow between these leadership styles depending on what they're doing, what the competence of the team is, and then the personality. They don't talk too much about the personality of the team uh, in any of the academic articles and books on this topic. But I think as a command master chief and as a senior leader, you definitely have to know the personality because there are a lot of folks that, you know, if you, you come in and you know, one astuan will shut down. Some say yes. it absolutely will happen. Yep. Uh, whereas a, a guy like me, an astuan to me is, you know, water on a duck's back. I'll take it and then walk away, go get a cup of coffee, and I forgot about it five yep. minutes later. But you've got to know that in your folks so that you can pick uh, the leadership style dependent upon the task that best suits the situation. Part of the theory I read about, you know, was the power-based influence tactics was the attitude of the audience you're trying to influence. And that gets into this a bit. And I don't want to dive too much, but typically it's one of three, right? So either part of your assessment is like, hey, 
the attitude is it's not necessarily their willingness or their confidence. It's also like, hey, do I have a team that's committed? Do I have a team that's just compliant, right? Hey, or a person, I'm doing what you want me to do. I'm capable of doing it, but you're not going to really get complete buy-in and who y'all out of me, I guess I would say. And then do you, or do you have a resistant attitude, right? And then you got to adjust as you go there. So, hey, Paul, I think you brought up a great, a great point there because, you know, there's a lot of times where, you know, when the rubber meets the road and in a combat situation, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll take a non-committed winner over a committed loser all day. Yeah. And that's a, that's a harsh statement. But that's, you know, when it when it's something that serious, that's kind of where I stand, you know. But there, there are absolutely other tasks where the commitment uh, part of the problem is much more important than the confidence of the team. Yeah. So a good leader has really got to be able to parse through those details and feel out the team and pick the leadership style and pick the members of the team best to accomplish the task. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, your point, right? So across, you know, just in the Navy, and we could take this in the civilian sector with different professions, but even those different areas, warfare communities, services, professions, they all have a different flavor, right? So like I grew up in Nuke Power, you know, our flavor was all about competence, right? Competence is where it mattered, right? So, you know, we would sacrifice, frankly, commitment of the team based on compliance and competence, right? And to your point, in like SEALs and EOD and these other communities, you know, you know, that's what you're assessing, right? Is like, you know, I'm going to take you, I'm going to impose so much stress and difficulty on you. I'm looking for you to pull from within. So I'm looking for that attribute, not to say we're discounting competence because clearly EOD, SEALs, those communities develop great competence in war fighting, but they're really looking for that commitment to team and commitment to mission as an attribute that they want in their teams. Absolutely. And that's, that's kind of, you know, it's, it's weird. So I, I came in EOD as pre-war, pre-9-11. And so it was really about being a team player and commitment to the team. Yeah. The war kicked off, you know, then it really became, okay, hey, you could be a great team player, but we're in war. And it, it shifted to the competence. And really the real win was to get a competent team player, you know, that, that kind of, that hit it all. He was very committed to the team and also very competent, he or she, to the mission. Okay. It's funny how it, the attitude evolved in my community yeah. uh, post 9-11 when IEDs went from things that beeped at you and training a lot of our training scenarios, they have beepers and sometimes some explosions that are, you know, buried in a hole few feet away from you. Enough to ring your bell and get your attention. But, you know, you know in the training evolutions that you're not going to get killed. Yep. And then in real life, when you're when you're dealing with IDs, you, you do get killed. Yeah. And the team, or or and when we were looking at competence and team player, you know, we we certainly focused more on competence uh, because the the penalties are real at that. So, like we've talked about, right? So a big part of this is coming into any. I don't care if you're coming in. I did an episode of podcast about growing into your new role, and part of that was assessing your team too. You know, you come in or as the situation dictates, the leader has to have the ability to understand the maturity of their team or their people based on their level of competence and commitment so they can select hopefully the the most, it might not be right, quote unquote, but it's probably the most impactful and influential leadership style at the time. So what's your advice on how to assess your team's maturity, their competence and their confidence? What have you done in the past? It comes down to the training cycle. I mean, in it can apply to any rate 
uh, any community, uh, you know, as you go through your OFRP, you're going to see who your winners are. You're going to see who the confident sailors are and who are the sailors that have great team commitment because they all play a role in these things. And that's where you kind of select those more technically competent sailors and more team committed sailors and you put them in the right roles so that when it's real and we're in combat or we're at war, you've got the best player, you know, you're putting the best team you can on the field uh, versus what everybody graded at through the OFRP. Does that make sense? Yes. Let's go to boot camp, right? There's no needed assessment, right? I know I have individuals that lack skills and they're probably not confident. They're being introduced to this new organization. It's shock and awe, right? It's a big culture change. So I'm definitely in the directing mode. I'm, I'm using, you know, very legitimate, legitimizing tactics and I think another thing, it's what people say and do, right? So if you just take time to sit down with your individuals and teams, they will kind of give you tells personally in the things they say and do that tell you, right? So sometimes they may be confident, but you ask them, hey, I want us to do that. And they don't, they, they indicate, hey, I don't want to do that, right? So that attitude is kind of, I'm capable, but unwilling. So now I need to shift yeah. towards these selling approaches, right? Or these influence tactics like rational ex- you know, persuasion, explaining the why, using inspirational appeals and ingratiation to kind of encourage them to want to do it. Or you'll know, hey, man, this second class petty officer or third class has been in this division for a long time. I've watched them. They know what they're doing and talking about. But then you'll come to them and go, hey, I'd like you to lead this thing. And I'll be like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm the right person, right? So this confidence reveals itself in that. And then, you know, you get up to the the other point where you come in and you look or you know your people and these people are confident. They want to take on responsibility. You know, they know their stuff and they're coming to you seeking responsibility. And then that should be a key indicator like, okay, I'm going to shift to the delegating role to this person or team. But also to your point, it's not just individuals, it's organizations, right? So as you know, I'm sure at the task force level, you and your commander can sit and look at individual units and you can assess them based on this model. Yeah, you're spot on. And it's uh, funny, like, you have to, you know, be be the person as you deal with the people. But as a leader, especially at the task force level, when you just, when, you know, at the task force level, you lead units and you mentor other CMCs. So it's a CMC that mentors CMCs, which is a tough thing to do Yeah, because it's personality-based. But in addition to, these are your peers. Um, it, you know, I, I get it in the officer world that when I talk about seniors and subordinates, but for me, and I think for most command masters, another command master is my peer. I don't care how many tours he's had, but if you see, you know, he or she off track, you have to, as a peer and not, and not as a senior subordinate, uh, you know, try to, try to get that train back on the rails. And it, it really is a difficult task and, and it really uh, situation leader plays a big part in how you how you handle those things. That command mass chief at the subordinate unit works for the commanding officer, not you, right? So there's no Absolutely. telling style. I think they're capable and willing. They're novice at their job and they're enthusiastic. But my job is to come in. I think regardless, you know, that's where the model kind of is is interesting. Depending on the position and the authorities the leader has. You know, it was always more supporting, right? Like, you know, what are your concerns? Here's some advice. Meanwhile, their commanding officer could actually be telling, you know, in a more directive leadership approach. So the position of the influencer matters, right? And the authorities of the influencer matters as well, if that makes sense. 
The Cutlass Podcast will return in a moment. For more than 100 years, naval professionals have counted on books such as the Chief Petty Officer's Guide to prepare them for the responsibilities as they advance in their careers and to serve as a ready reference and refresher when needed. The Chief Petty Officer's Guide provides unique insights into topics such as the one discussed in this podcast, which enable Navy chiefs and other leaders to achieve their objectives and positively influence their sailors, peers, and leadership. The Chief Petty Officer's Guide is essential and insightful reading for chiefs of any experience level, first-class petty officers who aspire to advance to chief, or anyone looking to reflect on the state of their leadership and management skills while benefiting from insights on the leadership and management approaches of U.S. Navy chiefs. Get your copy today at www.usni.org backslash books or online at your bookstore of choice. Signed and inscribed copies can be ordered at www.cutlessleadership.com. Now back to the Cutlass Podcast. I see a lot of command master chiefs get a bit off track where, you know, we are not commanding master chiefs. We are command master chiefs. And we have a boss. And our boss is the commanding officer. Always, period. And there's always a, it's a great unofficial relationship between the command master chiefs where we can talk amongst each other. Uh, frankly, hurt each other's feelings and get things done. But at the at the end of the day, I don't work for the fleet mass chief out here. I work for a commodore, and that's a lot of a lot of folks forget those things. Yeah. And I I just like to tell people always remember who you work for. Yeah, I'm with you. All right, so um, I think it's always best to blend this social science and the the charts and graphs and all that stuff. Like I said, yeah. with personal experience, you're going to give us this operational experience. Um, and I'd like to hear where you found yourself working through this model. Yeah, we're leading and influencing outcomes, but we're also in this management process. And I think that I think that will resonate with you specifically in your community because you're let's get into an operation where you were involved through the planning phase, the organizing phase, the directing phase and controlling. And then talk to me how you were assessing and using, whether knowingly or unknowingly, situational leadership to account or to achieve those management goals in each of those phases you have a situation teed up to, t- to talk about and and it was subconsciously i, I certainly wasn't thinking about mercy or blanche's graphs as i went through the phases of this operation now, i'm not going to use names in this okay uh, i will give a location which is samara iraq um which is where this went down but i worked i i certainly hit three of the four leadership styles as we worked through this operation. And as a, as a combat leader, you have to be able to do that because in combat, the enemy gets a vote. And yes. so as mundane or routine as a situation is, well, that, that that's totally dependent on the enemies because it, it's mundane and routine until it's not. And then, and then oftentimes, and in this case in particular, I had to shift leadership styles quickly, uh, really, uh, at the speed uh, with which one would throw a switch to get the results that I wanted. So, like I said, it was in, it was in Iraq. In our community, it's all about team. It, we work in small units, you know, from two men. You know, we're never alone. It's always at least two sailors up to up to eight, and then we have super platoons that are bigger than that. Okay. Um, and it's all about teamwork. So, in training, uh, the lowest guy in the total pole gets a vote. And, and we encourage a lot of discussion amongst the team when, when problem solving. Matter of fact, if, if there's not discussion amongst the team from the lowest to the highest, uh, we'll start looking at that team with a lot of scrutiny uh, if they're not doing that. Okay. 
and that it, it, and it's a great thing. But sometimes in combat, you don't have you don't have the luxury of time, and sometimes that that discussion amongst and up and down the chain of command, there's just no time for it. And so you have to move into a different leadership style. So in this scenario, I was in Iraq. There was a another group that we worked with from time to time, and they were a direct action. Direct action means they, you know, they were the the truly pointy end of the spear. Okay. Um, you know, wrapping up bad guys is kind of what this group did. Okay. And they went in. They went into a target uh, to get some guys. We were not with them at the time, and it was at night. Uh, they rolled into a target. They hit a house, and they wrapped up some bad guys. One of the things we'll do. Uh, on on a hit like that is we absolutely will interview and photograph everybody, everybody that we had come across. Okay. And as they were hot washing this off, they realized there was another guy that they wanted that was in the house, but because he had changed his appearance by shaving and things like that, they didn't realize who they had let go. So they wanted to go back. Like I said, we weren't with this group on the original hit. So the next day we get a call that this group is going to go back to get this other guy. And the concern was, as they were exfilling the first time they were at this house, the house next door had a whole bunch of propane bottles out in the alley behind the house. And at the time, we were dealing with something called houseborn IDs, HBIDs. It's just like VBIDs or VBIDs, which are vehicle-borne ID. Okay. Vehicle-borne improvised explosive device. Well, Houseborne explosive devices were a thing now, and people were concerned about it. And, and what, the, what a houseborne ID was, was, uh, you know, bad guys would get into a location. They might set up one room as the, as the trap room, or sometimes the, the operation was uh, the whole house. The whole house was big with, you know, explosives all through the house, and they would act purposely, very suspiciously to get an American team in there to, to get into the house. And then the whole house blows up and, you know, obviously multiple casualties in a situation like that. Yeah. And for me, we had lost some guys. I, this was at a time in Iraq where Navy OD guys were losing quite a few. And so it was a, it was a personally tough time. And if I'm being totally honest, I wasn't a hundred percent sure that everybody we had gone into country with was going to come out of this. The, the houseborn ID was a real thing. So these guys were concerned with the house next door to the target house that they wanted to hit. And it was that day, which for us is a huge no-no. We, we almost never do anything during the daytime. Um, but it was, it was uh, time-sensitive. Uh, they had assets that, that were watching the target. You know, we had to go during the day. So the plan was they wanted my team, EOD guys, plus my security element, which was five or six gun trucks, to approach from the opposite direction that the assaulters were going to approach from and get a quick peek at the house next door to ensure it was not a houseborn ID before they hit the target house. And we were approaching the target from opposite sides of town. So they came in from the east and we came in from the west. And we were going to stand off one block from each direction as I was supposed to take a look at the, the house next door. The way that we were going to do that was with my robot, one of my robots. Okay. That we were going to send out, zip it down this alley, you know, take a look at the house next door, and then make a decision as to whether or not I thought the house next door was a threat, 
and then the assaulters would hit the target. Funny, so during the initial phases of this, I played, when it is, I tie this back to situational leadership, I was certainly in the supporting role, which is the whole team had input. We were coming up with what our plan was going to be. In addition to the planner from the assault unit was also in a supporting role. You know, so we, we had worked with these guys a couple times, but not a whole lot. We weren't a you know, officially attached to these guys or, you know, somehow it worked. That was an IED response team. And, right. and then from time to time, we'd get called up to uh, augment these assault units as things happened. And the planner for, and it, it was their platoon leader. We rolled in to the town that morning. We, we got into the plan, you know, so here I was in a support, you know, in supporting mode with my team as we planned the convoy out to the target and then we knew we were going to do additional planning uh, once we got to the, it was a FOB, a Ford operating base in, okay. in that town to talk with this other unit. And that platoon leader of the other unit, he was also in the supporting mode. So he's planning with his, with his team. And, you know, he's like, hey, EOD, you know, come over here, come to the table. Hey, what did you bring as far as firepower? How many gun trucks do you have? You know, what weaponry are they mount? You know, do you have mounted uh, on the cruiser mounts, those, those kinds of things. So quickly pulled us into the fold and absolutely in supporting as we planned this operation. We finished the planning. The plan was they were coming from one direction. We were coming from the other. I was going to throw my robot out, take a quick look at the house next door. Yeah. And if I deemed it to be safe, they would roll in and, and hit the target and grab the guy that they wanted. As we prepped to head out to that, to that I rolled into a delegating mode where I, look at my team, which is guys that I had worked with, I was in a delegating mode as we loaded out uh, what we were going to take out to this, to this role. I, you know, I provided some input, uh, but certainly I was comp, you know, I had a, a highly competent team who were highly committed to the mission. So it didn't need a lot of oversight and they knew what I would want to bring. So I didn't have to, to go in and, and weigh in on all the dirty details because I knew that that my team knew what I wanted. So we roll out to the target. Everything's going as planned, which it normally does at the beginning of, beginning of any combat operation, yeah. um, but never ends up that way. So I had a piece of equipment on my truck called a gyro cam. And really what it was, was that it's a camera that I can push up on a mast. It, it sees in multiple modes, kind of like Predator. Okay. And I can really get a good look at stuff. So we rolled up from the opposite direction. We were one block out, as were they, uh, on the other direction. And we can see each other on, there's a system called Blue Force Tracker. We, we can see everybody. And, you know, it's really kind of real time. And it's not video, but we can see where they're located, where I'm located. We're all in position. I realized that my gyro cam can actually get a quick look at this house. So I, I run the gyro cam up and I see at the house and there's kids running all over this place. I can see people in almost every room of this house, and I know for a fact this house is not ready. Didn't need to put the robot out. I already knew. So I radio back to the platoon leader of the assault units, and I tell him, hey, this house is good. Uh, it's definitely not rigged. You guys, uh, you know, you're cleared hot. Get in there, get your guy, and let's get out of here. So, And at the time, the town was a bad place to be. for Certainly for EOD guys, we were a primary target. So uh, I had a lot of motivation to, to make this operation quick and get out of there. Well, the platoon leader was very concerned 
even though I had told him, hey, I, you know, as an EOD guy, I'm telling you the house is clear. It, I don't know if there's stuff in the house. I'm telling you the house itself is not a house for an ID. I can see it. Yeah. Uh, but he was not confident. So now we enter this kind of negotiating phase between me uh, and my security guys and the assault unit that's going to hit the target. We're going back and forth, and he I can see, I can sense it, and I can feel it through the radio traffic. He is not going to go into the house because he's not confident that the house next door is not going to explode and take out a bunch of his guys. Right. And so my concern was if I put the robot out, which is really what he wanted. The problem is if I put the robot out, I mean, it's a robot, and there's kids all up and down the alley uh, you know, of the target house, and they're going to see it, and that's when, you know, hey, Dad, look, you know, there's a robot out here. And, you know, now bad guys, that that's kind of the key to these assault situations. You know, the best way not to get in a gunfight is to get in there before anybody can get to their guns, which is really what my objective was. I really didn't want to put this robot out. So as we're going back and forth, uh, I go to the platoon leader and say, hey, how about this? If I roll into your stack and go into the house with you, is that confident enough on my part for you guys to take my word that I'm sure the house next door is not a problem? Yeah. And he goes, oh, yeah, totally. I mean, if you're going to go in there with us, yeah, we're, we're good with that. Here's where I shift to a very directing mode. So my teammates and my truck, and there was three of them, they hear all of this discussion. Yeah. And it is absolutely not in our playbook to do what I did. Right. But I, but I felt I was I was confident that it wasn't going to be a problem. I was very concerned with time because the longer we sat there, the more time there was for lookouts and other bad guys to alert the bad guys that were going to get um, that were there. So I make this agreement with the platoon leader to roll into their sack. He said, hey, all right, man, roll in second to last guy. That's that's your spot. And we're going to go in. I'm like, got it. Like I said, my teammates all heard this. Yeah. Um, we had an internal communication system called ICOM. Okay. I unplug from ICOM, plug in, plug into my radio so I can now talk, you know, via radio to my teammates and the, and the assault unit. And my long gun, my M4 was mounted in a rack in the back of the truck. I can get to it from my seat, but it's just easier to have the guy in back hand it up to you. Yeah. And I say, Hey, hand me my long gun. And the team, both of the guys, we're like, hey, senior, I was a senior chief at the time. They're like, hey, senior, uh, we want to talk. I'm like, you know, immediately I snapped. I'm like, M4 now, because I had already made a decision, and I didn't want any more discussion. Right. Right or wrong, that was where I was. These guys weren't used to me, you know, breaking it off in their ass like, you know, <laughs> they, they just weren't. This is not the kind of team we had. So they hand me my weapon. I jump out, you know, run, run down the block all alone. And the assault unit comes from the other direction. I roll into their stack. Uh, they get their dive mission, mission done. But I, it was very relevant to this discussion because I had to roll through, you know, a very supporting role to a, to a coaching role and a delegating role right to directing. And, and, and I shifted to directing in, you know, less than a second because I didn't have time to discuss yeah. why I made the, the decision I did and I needed my long gun. <laughs> I didn't want to have a talk about it. Yeah. Whereas all through the training cycle, because we encourage so much discussion and we do trust our people. But at that point I had made a decision. I didn't want to talk about it anymore. And I think it leads to another thing, which I, I like to call situational follow followership. Yeah. So I'm glad you uh, brought that up. Important. 
Yeah, I think it's crazy important for senior enlisted leaders because we all have a boss, uh, certainly CMCs. It's a commanding officer, whether it's a task force or a fleet or a unit, you know, whatever it is. You have to know your boss. You have to know situational fellowship. There's a time where your leader may make a decision, whether you agree with it or not, and you're expected to execute. And if you can't read the situation and you and you push back at everything or everything you disagree with, pretty soon you become the boy that cried wolf and not, you know, you kind of need to say my opinion. Yeah. You need to save those times to push back when it when you really need to do it so that your boss will listen like, hey, you know, hey, boss, I never say this, but man, you are really off track on this one. And here's why. If you do that with everything you disagree with, well, it loses loses its uh, potency. Yeah. And, and how how you can get through to your boss. Yep. So. Which, you know, in this situation, it was funny. So the driver was a guy, uh, this was my first tour with him. The guy in the back I'd had multiple tours with, and he knew my team. When I asked for my long gun and the team wanted to have a discussion and I screamed out M4 now, he immediately tossed that M4 up to the front because he knew, you know, because he's a good situational follower. Jim knew that I was in execution mode and I wasn't going to have any more discussion about the topic. Um Whereas the driver wanted to have more discussion, and I, I basically, you know, opened the door as he was still talking and wanting to discuss my decision of jumping out of the truck and running into the house. Uh, I was already out of the truck, yeah, and you know, had already opened the door and left because Jim, as a good situational follower, knew that the decision was made, and you know, I was going to live with whatever results, whatever you know, whatever happened was going to happen, yeah. On that note, I think that's important, right? Because I wrote that down, right? Um, how did your team respond? Because there's some, quote unquote, there's some risk to the buy-in of the team, right? If you shift to a leadership style, was there a discussion on the back end when this all calmed down, right? Was some, frankly, some more coaching and, you know, training of your reliefs on the back end of, of that decision shift? Absolutely. You had to pull the guys in and say, hey, listen, uh, I know I snapped. I know that, you know, I wasn't really soliciting input at that point. But don't shut down on me because I need, during regular times and regular situations, I need that small unit discussion back and forth to keep us on track. Because you know, We see that in the EOD community a lot. Like It might be the most junior guy will see one thing that everybody else missed. And oftentimes, it's the one thing that wins the situation, wins the day. Yeah, I didn't want to stifle that because it, with this particular team i hadn't really in too many situations had to break it off like that yeah um and i didn't want those sailors to shut down on me and and think that i didn't want their want their input because you know it's as you know paul um and i need the input from those guys yeah you know absolutely had to say hey look here's here's why i did it here was the decision i was looking at you know time was critical I didn't want to put the robot out. This was the only way that was going to give the platoon leader enough confidence just to roll into the target right now, not waste any more time for people to make phone calls, you know, so that bad guys can get into fighting positions and people to resist versus us just knocking the door down and going in and getting. Somebody. Yeah. So while I say that, Paul, I don't, I, there's not always a place for that. Sometimes you have to be in a very directing mode, and that's just the end of it. Yeah. I think it also my, comes my down to just because I'm in directing mode doesn't mean I have to come across as an asshole. And I'm not saying you were in that case. Um, you had a sense of urgency. You were very directive, right? 
if you use that sparingly and when the context is appropriate, it's actually a very effective influence tactic, right? Because people are like, whoa, this is serious. I think that's an important point. Leaders can't shy away from that. I think it shows authenticity, but you can't always step out with that delivery or then you will alienate your team and lose the buy-in. Yeah, you're, you're spot on there, Paul. Totally agree. You know, I said earlier in the discussion that early in my CMC career, and really early in my career, it was kind of a one-trick pony. And the trick was I had a hammer, and I was really good at using the hammer. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's important for, for folks to know their self. I know that I like accountability. I'll take all the egg on my face, all the egg on my community's face to hold people accountable. That's just me. That's, just, you know, my personality. Yep. Um, so in my first CMC tour, um, you know, I, I had a fracture chief's mess. The command that I inherited was it was a bit off the rails. Yep. And I was a great tool for that situation because I was a hammer. And, you know, it, that's what that situation needed. Yep. I happened to be really good at that particular leadership style. So I was a good fit. The problem was, so I did that tour. I did a tour in Millington between. And then I went to my first task force shop. And that, and it was, you know, it's a staff job. You're running an entire task force, an extraditionary task force, but you do it through a staff and the staff didn't need a hammer. They needed a jeweler screwdriver. Yeah. You know, so, uh, I was, I was a really, I was really good at directing. I was not great at supporting and delegating. I was not great at that. Yeah. So I had to kind of really quickly, you know, sharpen some of the other tools in the toolkit to get the most out of the staff and the task force I was working with. That's why, you know, I, I tell people, Hey man, like you can't lead every sailor the same way, right. you know, cause you know, one asks you in for certain sailors, they'll just shut down on you. And, and now the team, the team is less, is lesser because of situations like that. Yep. You know, some, some sailors, you really got to coach some sailors. You do have to use the hammer. That's what, yep. that's what gets through. Uh, yep. But you got to be able to kind of shift between those leadership styles to get the most out of the cards that you're dealt. Uh, because I know we like to say that the boot camp produces the same sailor, but it doesn't. Most of those sailors are, you know, 18 20 to 24 years old. And, you know, three months, two months of boot camp is not going to undo 18 to 24 years of life. Yeah. And you've got to be able to shift between those leadership styles to get the most out of that team. I think this has been a good discussion. I think we've hit a lot of stuff. We've walked through everything that I kind of wanted to touch on. I know we could talk for another hour, but your time is important. Any other last thoughts or resources you would offer? I will tell the audience that the professional military courses that I've been to have absolutely had an impact on how I lead and how I have been able to kind of get in tune with myself to see where my blind spots and weak spots are to tune those up. So absolutely highly, highly encourage senior listed leaders to get as much education as they can. And for the, for the audience, especially the senior listed audience, don't duck that military education. It's it, had I not done those courses, I would not have been able to advance uh, through the echelons that I have. All right, Rick, thanks again for joining me and offering these insights and your experience in combat and putting it into this situational leadership role. Good luck to you. Yeah, Paul, appreciate it, man. Good luck to you, my friend. So for the audience, a few questions for self-reflection. Number one, I would say, how familiar are you with the situational leadership model? I've offered some resources, so I encourage you to take some time today or this week, frankly. It's not just going to be done in a day. Just take a look at it, right? Again, 
it'll give you something to think about. And I think it's uh, something great for any leader or developing leader of any maturity level to take a look at. Second, how well are you able to assess the willingness and maturity of your teams and your people to best select the leadership style? And with that is how comfortable are you with the variety of influence tactics that you've got? Like Rick mentioned, he talks about the hammer, right? Well, in in influence theory, that would be using legitimizing or positional power um, approaches or using pressure when you need to, right? And although you don't use those a lot, those are tools you got to be able to go to in your leadership tool bag and tactics you got to be able to use. And then finally, how comfortable are you with the directing, supporting, coaching, and delegating leadership approaches? Which are you strongest with and why? And then probably more importantly, which one should you work on to improve and then who can help you? So thanks again. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Cutlass Podcast. I'm Paul Kingsbury. Work hard to keep your leadership cutlass sharp, reflect and improve, and take what you learn to become a sturdy, versatile, incredible leader who makes a positive difference.